This is an Island to Island production. I'm Ollie Walker and welcome to Ironcast, the show that brings you discussions with craftsmen, celebrities, denim heads, retailers, members of the internal and external Ironheart family, and, well, sometimes people we just plain like. In episode three, we're talking to Danny Hodgson, owner of Riverton Hyde in London and Manchester. We talk about his rockstar home, his time at British Airways, and Brexit. This is an Island to Island production. You're listening to Ironcast. Enjoy. Oh, thank you so much. Brilliant. Thanks. Fluids around electrics. That's a oh. good idea, isn't it? This is me. This is what I do all the time. <laughs> so we're talking to Danny Hodgson. We are we are um, in his gorgeous West London home. Um, how long have you lived here for now? Uh, three years we moved. Three years in April. Three years. Uh, and there's some history with this house, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Can you tell us about of, that? It's got a bit of rock history. Um, when uh, when we bought it, uh, the reason we came here was because of the huge garden. So we moved out to Ealing. So we were more central London before then. And uh, you get more of your money out here. And we just fell in love with the garden. It's like 35 metres long. Yeah. Beautiful. And uh, lots of established trees, and at the back of it, there's a pond. And the previous owners said there's a bit of history to this pond. It was built by Kirsty McCall, who <laughs> sang with the Pogues. Her mother used to live here, and Kirsty lived around the corner. And they built this pond. So after her death, um, if your listeners don't know, um, she died sadly in a speedboat accident in Mexico in about 2002 and uh, it it sort of became a shrine to Kirsty the pond and when the previous owners uh, who bought the property from Kirsty's mother about eight years ago told us this we kind of felt because we were planning on building an office for me right over the pond yeah like oh my god we can't do that anymore can we and uh, (laughs) It'd be sacrilege against the uh, British pop world, yeah, and yeah. Um, so we're going to build one, but on the other side of the, the garden side. now, out of respect to Kirsty, keep her pond going, and, yeah, and the fish alive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, how long have you been in London for now? Then, in total, well, I was born in London, right? Um, Whereabouts? And in East London, London. yeah, Epping, East London, well, right. actually born in Epping Forest, but okay. I, um, I grew up in East London, oh, right. yeah. And uh, then my mum married my stepfather when I was about eight and we moved to Yorkshire. He was a Yorkshireman and I lived there uh, for 10 years until I finished my schooling. And I came back to London, I went to university in London and um, then I've sort of lived in London ever since, but with a 15 year period living in Madrid. Madrid, (laughs) Madrid. Yeah, I went there when I was 29 back in 1995. And and what? brought you to Madrid, if you don't mind me asking. When I was a student, I studied um, French and Spanish at King's College in London back in the 80s. And I spent a year abroad. And as part of, well, actually almost spent two years abroad in total. And for my Spanish, I went to Seville and just fell in love. I mean, if you've ever been to Seville, you, you'd understand why it's such yeah. a beautiful city. And... Um, I just had such fond memories of living there as a student that I wanted to go back. And um, when I left university, I wasn't quite sure what what I wanted to do. I was going to go into publishing, uh, but it was so poorly paid. And <laughs> was I was really? really keen to earn a little bit of money. And I'd heard, I'd read something in the paper about um, British Airways and being crew for British Airways, you could, you know, it was quite good money there, it was quite generous allowances and you flew around the world. And in most of my time at university, we lived in a house in South London with uh, friends I'm still very close to today, uh, 35 years later. And we, when I used to get the train to Blackfriars, I went to King's College, which is just near, you know, Temple. I used to look up at the sky and I could see these like jumbo jets uh, banking 
to line up for their final approach into London Heathrow. Mm. They used to kind of wonder where they'd been and all these exotic places that they were, uh, they'd come from and the people on board. And so that job really appealed to me. I thought, I'll go and do that for a couple of years. So I applied and um, got the job. Uh, it was my first proper job after university. Intended to stay for a couple of years, you know, travel a bit around the world, free travel. And I stayed there for 25 years. 25 years. Yeah. And, but after a few years there, just to go back to your question, um, there were a few crew, pilots and cabin crew, that um, didn't, that lived far away. You know, there were lots of crew based in Scotland. They used to fly down to London for their long haul flights. Yeah. You know, you do about three or four trips a month. Mm-hmm. So, but there were some that were living in Europe. And uh, there was a contingent in Morzine, you know, the ski crowd that used to live in Morzine. And just, uh, I mean, what a life. And I, so it inspired me. And I'm like, well, I could go and live back in Spain. And uh, I went on a trip to, um, I remember coming in from a flight from Tokyo and then a working trip and then going to Madrid to see some friends that I had there. And then within a month, I was actually uh, living there. A friend of mine had a flat and he was going away for six months. He said, well, you can use my flat. Uh, and then I stayed there for 15 years. I bought my own flat there, uh, which when I sold it, kind of I used to invest into Rivet and Hyde. And um, yeah, so that's how I ended up in Spain. Oh came back, uh, Junior and I came back. So I met Junior whilst we were in Spain back in 2002. Junior's your husband, partner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're married now, yeah. yeah. Uh, and we, you know, he obviously moved here for the first time mm-hmm. because Junior uh, was born in Brazil but had become a Spanish national. And uh, so he moved here with me in 2009. Oh and, uh, so hang on, did you speak the language? Spanish. Well, you actually spoke Spanish. When you, when you moved to Madrid, were you already fluent in Spanish uh, or did you learn it yeah, on I the fly? I was really. I mean, I, I studied Spanish in... French at university, so right. I, was, I was pretty fluent, yeah. Already there with it. Yeah. So you just, were you having to learn the nuances when you were living there? Or well, was it already... When I, when I was a student, I lived in Seville, and they have a really strong accent. And uh, it was my first three months in Seville, I couldn't follow anything that was going on. It, one word just ran into the other, and I just... And I, you know, I, my Spanish was pretty good at that stage, but I, I was completely lost. So that was really good training for me. So when I went to Madrid, where people speak in a much more clipped um, manner, much clearer accent, it was a doddle for me to understand them. So really, um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, languages was one thing that I was I kind of was good at, and not typically uh, British in that sense, but academically that was really where my my strengths <laughs> lie i was hopeless at anything kind of scientific or mathematical uh, but on the on the language side i did pretty well and so yeah no it was, uh, yeah but obviously 15 years living in spain and in madrid you you learn a lot more of the language and um, which presumably served you very well at ba when you were flying i'm guessing you yeah i actually taught spanish in, when i was at ba i didn't fly all the time uh, this is going back to the 90s when ba in the day when airlines you know were cash rich and you know they they, they weren't facing the problems that they face uh, today they had a, a language school where you know their customer facing staff could uh, develop their language skills to help them in their job and uh, we used to run courses out in Salamanca in Spain. And uh, I used to go out there for those. And then we'd have to give them a test at the end of it. It was a, it was a real good jolly. It was all expenses paid. It was fantastic. Yeah. So this, you'd say that was like the glory days of BA, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. I so mean, you hit it. You the, kind of were there at the pinnacle. Yeah. I mean, even when I joined, uh, some of the, you know, I was, when I joined, I joined in 1989. And I was flying with people that were, uh, flying since before I was born and they were the real kind of glamour girl types you know the ones that had cut glass accents oh, and, uh, very very kind of sophisticated it was like a finishing school for them <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and they were kind of coming up to retirement and they were there were some real characters I can tell really? you and they used to talk about you know they had the good old days uh, but really um, the turning point for me was September the 11th and um, in 2001 with the really? you know tragedy in New York yeah. and 
that really changed the whole airline business, you know, in terms of security, the costs involved with that. And it suddenly went from being a job that was, or a business that was really fun to be in, to a, a business that was, you know, it, 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 you know, just everything changed. It just became yeah. a lot more serious, and, uh, and 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 the fun element sort of uh, quite quickly disappeared. Really, which is you know after two thousand two thousand and one, uh, with all the security measures that came in, it, it, I kind of knew the writing was on the wall, and it started. It was the point where I thought, God, I've been here for like fifteen, well, twelve, eleven, thirteen years. I need to think about moving on but I couldn't quite work out what I wanted to do I'd probably become a little bit institutionalised right you know? right right is that quite common there would you have said well I think in a big company when you're there for a long time yeah. you know you, you probably do and you know I'd gone from school to university to British Airways all kind of big you know yeah. organisations for <laughs> yeah. me that uh, I felt probably shielded in some way mm. you know mm. from the outside world <laughs> so so you have to tell tell me then so what was what was the moment for you or what was the lead up to the moment where you said I am going out and I'm starting something completely different what was that moment there was actually a moment uh, literally quite, a... there was a definitive moment wow. and I don't talk about this very often and I don't want to go into too many details mm. because I have a lot of respect and you know for the company that I worked for yeah. for 25 years uh, British Airways um, and I still you know I've got a pension with them as well so I've got to be careful what I say <laughs> but back in 2010 there was a really bitter industrial dispute yeah. and they were just they were bringing in measures that were just so transformative that it was very hard for people that were already working at BA to to take um, but it wasn't so much you know we all accepted that terms and conditions were going to have to change but it was the way they were implementing implementing them there was a lot of bullying going on a lot of psychological warfare that I found really hard to take and at that point I thought I'm getting out of here and I'm going to do my own thing and we did. We just moved back to London from Spain, and we can move on to the subject of coffee here uh, yeah. quite easily. Because, As I take a sip of um, the lovely one you just made. Yeah. <laughs> um, everyone thinks you know in Spain or oh, great coffee. There's many things you, I love about Spain, but at mm. the time the coffee was dreadful, and <laughs> absolutely dreadful. Really and I used to only have it. Like as kind of medicinal because everything in Spain starts so late so yeah. to go out you know you go out at 10, 11 o'clock at night I can't believe I did that but uh, <laughs> you know you did and uh, so I would have coffee after dinner yeah. um, but they were horrible like shots of espresso that uh, were just you know there to perk me up rather than enjoy the flavour but we moved back to London at the time that all these Antipodeans were opening their uh, coffee businesses yeah. in London and bring in the kind of Australian yeah. style coffee culture like flat white on Berwick Street flat white on yeah. Berwick Street yeah, yeah to, to London yeah. and um, I, I I started visiting quite a few of these and really getting into coffee and it was trans well uh, transforming the, the way I experienced coffee and yeah. and uh, appreciated it and and also they did really good food and I've always enjoyed food and cooking and everything. So I kind of would like love, you know, in between trips with BA, I'd go somewhere different in London. And I thought, you know what, I think I'd love to have a coffee shop because it was, you know, it's hospitality, it's service, it's food. It's all the things that, you know, might reflect my background. Uh, that I felt quite confident that I could probably open a successful coffee shop and do it well. So I did a lot of research and I got to know Peter at Caffeine, uh, Caffeine mm. on uh, Great Titchfield Street. Titchfield, yeah. And we actually held our launch party there at the Rivet and Hyde in uh, 2012. Giles and Paula came along to that. Why, really? And, yeah. And um, Peter kind of mentored me a little bit in, the, uh, in coffee and taught me quite a lot and from the business side as well and then I met Elizabeth who was um, uh, she was a 
obsessed about coffee and we became friends and we were going to open a coffee shop together and we almost did it we there was a place near St Paul's Cathedral and yeah, yeah and uh, we needed a spot we just... almost well it was a yeah I think it was a uh, I think it was a Kath Kitson shop <laughs> but she'd moved on from that shop and yeah. it was vacant and we nearly signed the lease on it and right at the last minute there was I could tell that Elizabeth's heart wasn't in it and there was something telling me no I don't want to do this so we pulled out no. uh, at the last minute and uh, I'd spent two years doing a lot of footwork around London and researching I learned quite a lot about coffee I went on coffee courses learned to do latte art and Yay. had a little machine at home and um, I, I mean I loved it I really enjoyed it and it actually taught me a lot that actually helped when I opened Rivet and Hyde um, but we we just parked that one all of a sudden and it was like you know it's like all of a sudden this thing that had occupied my mind for two years uh you know was not going to happen anymore so i thought what am i going to do and um i started learning norwegian just to fill the gap i know <laughs> no, that sounds bizarre no, no honestly yeah wait, wait um, just just a moment already in your wheelhouse obviously english french spanish <laughs> so there was a fourth edition was there another uh, was, uh, well I speak Italian but uh, not, not, not as well as uh, not as well as my French and Spanish wow. I wanted to do something very different and I was a um, good friend of mine um, two, two good friends of mine uh, from Norway we used to we'd been to um, uh, the Arctic for his 40th to Svalbard he'd organised a trip it was an amazing trip for just for a few days and um I just always been pulled towards Scandinavia and you know the landscapes and the wildlife and gorgeous yeah and I thought I'm going to learn Norwegian that will occupy my mind that will be like a mental exercise so I did it for like about a month and then but it just wasn't cutting the mustard you know I was like oh. and I'd had this idea about opening a denim shop I'd been very much inspired by Self Edge uh, in the States mm. I discovered shortly after it opened when I was doing trips out to San Francisco mm. and I met Kia who owns it um, you know just as a customer and him as a, a shop owner and kept thinking oh this would be great to have something like this in London yeah. and um, you know there was Son of a Stag but they, he, Son of a Stag was kind of in going down a slightly different route to the one that I envisaged for Rivet and Hyde mm. and well Son of a Stag was I feel like if I'm, if I'm not mistaken here, it was a bit more, would you say, retro-inspired, slightly more vintage-inspired, or...? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas yeah. I feel like Self-Edge and what you're doing, it's more kind of rooted in the present. Yeah. I mean, Self-Edge is very Americana, and, uh, you know, it's based in California, you know. It, 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 it exists where that culture comes from, you know. It's, you know, it's an amazing shop. Mm. But... Um, and I, you know, was very much inspired by Self Edge. And when we started out, there was a few brands of, uh, that we we like the flathead that Self Edge had, and mm. um, and I think I took Rivet and Hyde down its own route. You know, that was much more tailored to the UK market, maybe the European market. Yeah. And um, you know, there's lots of similarities between us and Self Edge, but probably less than when we first started. Uh, we've gone down. We both. You know, gone down slightly different routes. Found your own route. So, on, on a personal level, what we what sort of clothes were you personally wearing at the time? Were you were you wearing that kind of world, or were you, were you in a different mode, or was it something well, when you... when I uh, I became quite a um, regular customer of Telfedge. You know? Oh, really? Yeah, I bought online, and uh, and I was regularly travelling to New York where they'd opened their, uh, another shop uh, a couple of years later. New York was one of my, you know, most frequent routes, as was San Francisco. So I had the opportunity to go and buy there. Wow. And, uh, you know, I got the bug. And Really? You know, I, in the same way that a lot of people, they get into Ironheart or a lot right. of uh, these brands, you know, they'll initially, they'll absolutely go mad buying much more than they ever need. Then they calm it down a bit, you know. That, well, I went through all that process. Really? Uh, and what uh, brands were you attracted to? Well, I have, a, I still have them. Uh, a pair of skull jeans. Skull? Uh, that... Selfedge used to sell Skull. Okay. Yeah. And a bit like us, Selfedge don't really drop brands. They, you know, they, they think hard about who they're going to carry. And yeah. 
but that was one brand that they did drop. But the they they look amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. They're a little bit tight on me now, but uh, <laughs> they uh, they look amazing. And I I think I had some Imperials from them, and yeah, Imperials skulls. Before Selfridge, I think I bought a pair of nudie jeans. Had a lot of people, you know, uh, gateway into yeah. raw denim at the Indeed, time. ABC, um, and I did have yeah. I did have vintage Levi's that were that were raw. I perhaps didn't understand that they were vintage. I kind of bought them because they appealed to me mm. uh, without necessarily understanding what I was buying. Right. You know, and I bought them down the King's Road at some some shop back in <laughs> in the nineties. But uh, at, at that point, I, I wasn't really thinking about what I was buying beyond like, oh, this fits me well, or I quite like this fabric, or, you know, that'll do. Mm. And then it kind of progressed. No way. Yeah. So you were, so you, so there was coffee, coffee came was like, it was a no-go. You, you, you shut that one down. Inspired by Selfridge, how did then Rivet and Hyde, like, what was the, the genesis of Rivet and Hyde? How did that all well, manifest? I'd actually met Giles and Paula because... As I was sort of getting more into raw denim, um, I discovered Ironheart, and I think I had my eyes on a pair of six six six. Okay, yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then I saw on their website that you could actually go and try them on, and I'd had a you know like everyone a few expensive errors of buying online and <laughs> having to send them back and getting hit with customs twice and that, all that sort of thing. But although that wouldn't happen in the UK, I thought well, I might just go down there. That would be you know interesting, hmm. and. Um, you know, they they were their normal, welcoming, friendly selves, yeah. and they asked me what I did. I always said I worked for BA, and they happened to know lots of people in BA. And it was just after the, the uh, you know, painful dispute we'd been through in 2010. So wow. they kind of were aware of that as well, and we just sort of chewed the fat a little bit about that. And then I came away, and when I decided that I was going to go down. Well, I'm going to tell you something here, and I hope Kia doesn't mind me telling you this, but um, I approached Selfedge in 2010 about opening a store with them in London. Wow. And um, and didn't expect, you know, <clears throat> Kia to say, yes, let's do it. Right. And he, um, he was really busy opening... Um, Los Angeles and New York at the time anyway so he had other things on his mind so nothing came of that so then in 2012 um, I thought I might do my own you know um, own thing but I was always doubting myself because I didn't have any background in uh, fashion or retail you know Junior had retail background actually that was quite invaluable mm. he uh, he'd worked at Peter Jones here in London so oh, wow. he he was working there at the time yeah. and um, so so that was very handy to have and I contacted Giles and said look I'm having I'm, I'm thinking about opening a, a denim store you know uh, and carrying Japanese brands mm. and Giles turned around to me and said well I distribute the flathead and uh if you want to carry that, you're welcome to. Really? And uh, I was like, wow. He said, but just beware, there's someone else thinking of doing the same thing. So it's basically going to be, going to be first come, first served. And that spurred me on. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I can't miss this opportunity. Because yeah. I knew that the Flathead was such a prestigious brand to have in the denim world. Right. And uh, to be given that opportunity, I didn't want to let that one pass me by. Yeah. And so I, uh, I mean, I didn't really have that much money um to, to i think i just i think i just like raised about twenty thousand pounds or twenty five thousand pounds on my mortgage initially to wow. do this wow and um we bought some flathead i remember my first first flathead delivery coming to our old place in the uh, baron's court in london and um and then we bought a hemming machine it was actually Johnny. I was in Singapore. Uh, Johnny at Obby Good Label. Right. I've been to see them, and I was telling them about my plans, and because um, I think I must, have, you know, like in the same way that I was going around London discovering coffee shops. As soon as I had this idea for denim stores, of course, anywhere I went around the world, especially Japan yeah. uh, or the United States, um, I'm trying to, th- and and then in the Far East, which was Singapore. That's how I found. Um, 
Obby Good label and their, yeah. their denim store out there. Yeah. And Johnny turned around to me and he said, you know you're going to need a union special. And I'm like, What's, what do you mean? <laughs> um, and he showed me their uh, vintage uh, 43200G uh, chain stitch hammer. And I looked at it and I thought, well, where am I going to get one of those from? And they said, well, it's not, it's not easy. And then I was thinking, how am I going to use one of those? Which, uh, <laughs> I, I don't. I'm the only person in the business that doesn't do any hemming. Uh, you wouldn't let me anywhere near the machine. And uh, so then I was like, oh, God. So I bought a Union Special. I bought it from a, uh, on eBay from California. Really? And it's the one we use in the London shop today. It was a really good buy, yeah. really good find. And, you know, there were some other brands we started with at the beginning and um, and we got going and we did it all from our flat in West London. It was all from the flat? Yeah. So you, how did that look? Just boxes everywhere? Box, it soon filled up because it wasn't the biggest flat. And, um, <laughs> and then customers got really excited. There's one that's become a good friend of mine, Andy, and uh, who lives in the Cotswolds. And he was one of our first customers. And he went, oh, this is great. I don't have to buy from overseas anymore and worry about import charges and then oh, wow. sending it back if, if I get it wrong. And he was really into the flathead. And he bought, bought a pair of flathead jeans from us. And, um, and then people wanted to come and try things on. <laughs> and they said, oh, you know, is it okay to come down to your office and try them on? And I had to say, well, actually, it's, it's my office is in my... Uh, flat in West London if you don't mind coming here so our living room you were room, fine with that well I no I was fine with that I was happy that people wanted to come and yeah. you know show interest in what I was doing I was yeah. you know delighted really but I just wanted to forewarn them that you know I didn't want them to kind of think it was some sort of like big denim yeah. empire yeah. that they were you know <laughs> headquarters in West London you know it was actually quite a modest West right. London flat right and uh, they were you know getting unchanged in front of me in um, my living room mm. and uh, it was really you know it was quite pioneering at the time yeah. and uh, and when we actually opened the store but people that had been to my flat or and then came to we called it the workshop because we did outgrow the flat yeah. and I opened an office uh, quite close to the flat in Parsons Green in oh, Fulham right. and uh, people would come by appointment in between my flying duties. So by this stage with BA, I was, I was working part-time anyway. I was gradually winding down so that I could start the business. Wow. Which was a great thing about BA. You had those opportunities to decrease your hours. And uh, I, I used to get like an extra seven or eight days off a month. And, um, and obviously my pay went down accordingly. But it did give me the flexibility to, you know, put the time and effort into some other project. Um and um, so we went to the workshop for a year and then I opened the shop you know people were coming along and they were getting so excited about the brands we were carrying and I could see it on their faces that it made me it gave me the confidence to actually open a physical shop I never really planned on doing that but yeah. Junior and I just said you know I think we really ought to open a proper shop yeah and because sales were were good at that point would you say yeah, um, as soon as, I mean, when we, the first month, the first first three months, it was like one a week uh, online. Yeah, yeah. And then we got to the December, we, we launched just after the London Olympics yeah. in August 2012. Yeah. So we had like a sale a week. But by December 2012, we were getting one or two sales a day because of the Christmas period. And that was really exciting, yeah. one or two sales a day, yeah. <laughs> And then after Christmas, you know, it did. And when we opened the workshop, people were coming. And then when people came to us, they would probably buy more than one thing. So that was like really encouraging as well. That, you know, people yeah. were prepared to spend more money. And people were traveling from all over the UK just to come to this, you know, modest office that I'd opened in West London. So everything was giving us the impression that this could do really well. Yeah. And um, we opened. Yeah, 2014, in March 2014, in March 2014. Um, Fitzrovia, on Wimore Street. Wimore Street. So how did you find the space? Was it, how, did you, how did you zone in on that area? Did you know you wanted to be in Fitzrovia? I had an idea that I wanted to be in Fitzrovia, and I popped into Lewis Leathers, and I spoke to Derek, Derek the owner, yeah. And, uh, and he said, look, if you're thinking about a shop, Fitzrovia is a great place, especially for a destination shop, because yeah. he said people come to London for so many reasons, and those reasons won't be far from here. You know, yeah. uh, so it's quite easy to think. Right, I'm, I'm here for a meeting in Soho. Yeah. I can walk up to Rivet and Hyde, you know, in Fitzrovia, or mm. I've got a meeting, or it, 
you know, somewhere in central London. And you've got all the train stations. And, you know, when we were at the office one day, we had a guy who, um, he was on a transit from Vancouver to South Africa. He had five-hour layover in London, and he came to see us. No. So it made me realise, you know, that being in quite central London was quite handy for people on so many levels, mm. whether, they, whether they were transiting or visiting London for whatever reason. So I decided that I wanted to keep it central, but mm. I didn't want to be anywhere too busy like Soho yeah. because we didn't want people coming to the shop that were just going to be uh, what's the word um, you know in a way wasting time you know we, yeah. we, we give our customers an awful lot of time and attention mm. we can spend an hour two hours on the purchase of one pair of jeans and we want people to feel comfortable you know taking that time if that's what it takes for them mm. to get the right pair mm. so we don't want to have people that are coming in going how much for a pair of jeans? You know? <laughs> because you're just wasting time explaining. You know, our store isn't for everyone. It's mm-hmm. for people who have a real interest in quality, quality denim and quality clothing that's on a level that you know you just don't find in other shops. Mm-hmm. So you need people to be kind of, kind of on a step towards us first, rather than just coming in by chance and seeing us. So if we were somewhere where we were completely exposed mm-hmm. to you know, tremendous footfall. It could be quite distracting and kind of kill the ambience of the shop as well. So getting that balance right was crucial. I can imagine because I've been there on, it's interesting, you're on there, you can be there on certain days and it can be quiet and calm and you can have a nice chat with someone, but then suddenly one person comes in and says, oh, I need these jeans hemmed. And suddenly one of the staff members is doing that. And then someone else comes in and wants to ask it. And suddenly then it becomes almost, it becomes like a, I'm not going to say a circus, but it becomes this, environment where I don't know how you manage everyone you yeah know, it's it is um can be feast or famine really because it can be very quiet <laughs> yeah. and uh, then everyone can come at once and you could have four or five customers in there that you know two of our sales staff are handling mm-hmm. and uh and you want to give them as much attention as possible but I think we do it really well mm-hmm. and what often happens is the customers that interact with each other and you've helped us out in the shop, so you know, yeah. you know, you know yourself uh, how it works. And you're great at getting, you know, talking to people and uh, and getting them to talk to each other. You know, and it's uh, talking crap. And you know, yeah. We, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of that. Uh, but um, yeah, you, getting the customers to talk to each other always helps take the pressure off stuff and you know it makes everyone enjoy themselves much yeah. more and it's always interesting especially when when you start seeing the staff uh, the customers start talking to each other because then suddenly one customer will start encouraging the other to buy the thing they're looking at yeah, they're, yeah. they're like <laughs> trying yeah. to make the sale they do they <laughs> work on our behalf it's exactly. really yeah, they're kind of emotionally invested or something i think so yeah it's really <laughs> sweet when that happens you, know, you can see you know i think it's more to do with that they generally love what we sell mm. and um you know, because it's such a quality, it always looks good on people, you know, as long as you're in the right size or the right fit for you, it's going to make you look good. So Mm. it's only someone verifying that or, you know, confirming that to someone and they've probably needed that confirmation themselves. So Mm. they're just, you know, a bit of encouragement. And um... So when you open the physical space in Windmill Street, I mean, obviously that's a, that's quite a, quite a, you know, a, 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 uh, a big jump between the flat and where you then went to. So what brands did you start stocking when you had the physical space? The shop, should I say? Oh, that's a really good question. I actually can't remember which ones came in just as... Well, Ironheart. Uh, Ironheart. Yeah, because when when we were only online, we couldn't sell Ironheart. Because Ironheart UK is based in the UK, they right. obviously did not want another online store. Because, yeah. you know, we're still, compared to high street brands, we're still quite, you know, small batch, small scale uh, brands. And that's, you know, why we have such loyal customers, because they appreciate that, you know, there's an exclusivity to it as well. Yeah. And... Um, 
And Giles always said to me, look, you know, if you ever open a bricks and mortar store, you can carry Ironheart. But until you do that, you know, we're not going to let you right. carry the brand. So as soon as we signed that lease, the Ooh. order was in. Wow, yeah. really? I was like, right, you've got to uh, honour your word here, Giles. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, But they were happy to. Yeah, and, uh, that's fantastic. I think we, you know, we help each other as well because um, we have customers that discover Ironheart through our stores. Mm. But we can't carry everything that Ironheart makes, you know, mm. to the extent that Ironheart UK does. Yeah. And so they'll have got lots of customers and sales as a result of customers discovering Ironheart through our shop. Mm. And, and, it, and the other way around as well, you know, customers that discover Ironheart or their forum and then they're going to be visiting London, they'll come and find us. So, mm. you know, it's self-supporting. So what were the things you learnt in your first year of training? What were the big lessons? I think the biggest lesson was how to manage cash flow. It is, I underestimated how difficult that would be. You know, I didn't come from a business or retail background anyway, so it was all a very steep learning curve. Right. And um, I used to, I always remember the first year you know, I'd get an invoice and I'd just like pay it straight away. Right. And I used to get, you know, compliments from the brands. Oh, thank you. You know, it's so nice someone paying on time. You know, <laughs> as soon as we opened the shop, that kind of like changed slightly. Because you, you know? had bill, uh, your oh, rent, you just, had yeah, the, the bill. wages. Yeah, it just, it, yeah, even though we were taking more, the outgoings just really go up. And, um, <laughs> and then it's very different, uh, you know, I always say that in retail, there's a fine line between confidence and recklessness when you're buying. And um, I've trodden that line quite finely at times. Uh, You know, I've always been a confident buyer and I've always been confident about the store. Um, I've kind of probably a little bit influenced by Giles as well, who, you know, he he has his mantra of, you know, if you haven't got it, you can't sell it. And... um, and it's true, you know, you've, you, 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 you've got to be confident with buying in order to, and you've got to increase your your, your buying in order to increase your sales right. uh, to a certain extent. So I was quite bullish in that, you know, in that respect. But you can easily become reckless and you can buy too much. And, you know, there were certain things I did buy too much of and um, that, you know, we started the outlet, the Sayonara outlet, mm. uh, which helped us where we perhaps overbought. Mm. Um, we use it for also for ends of lines, you know, there's just things where the odd size is left and what have you. Um, but that's really how the Sayonara outlet uh, started, where there were certain lines I'd just gone too deep with. And um, so that, I think the biggest lesson was not to, not to overbuy, um, you know, and it, it was hard, and I think I was just getting that. I was just kind of getting on top of that, and then we opened the second store two years ago in Manchester. Manchester, and you you like go back to zero. It's like really? you start all over again in terms of your learning, and uh, because the people that are coming into store are just completely different to the people that are coming into London. Um, in actual fact, yeah, it is different. Uh, there there is a different emphasis up there. Uh, with certain brands and certain styles. Um, can I just say, where is the, the, the store, just so people can, when rent, when things go back to normal? It's where? on Thomas Street in the heart of the Northern Quarter. Heart of the Northern yeah, Quarter. Yeah, uh, 59 Thomas Street. It's uh, If anyone knows Oi Poloi, yeah. we're just a couple of doors away from Oi Poloi. Just by Oi Poloi. Nice coffee shops around there, presumably. Yeah, some great ones, yeah. There's okay. one I go to when I'm up there called Tack. Tack. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. So people can go have a coffee, come to the store. Yeah. Just between friends is just around the corner from us. That's a nice one. Perfect. So yeah. Brilliant. Sorry to carry on. So the clientele, people that are coming in, the customers that are coming yeah. into Manchester. Yeah. Um, you know, you we actually get a slightly younger crowd uh, in Manchester. Um, so that's reflected just in the size runs, for example. A lot more twenty eights. 28 yeah, 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 maybe not so many 28s, but you know, a few more low 30s, let's put it that way. Right, you know? right. And um, then... And are these people come, coming in? Like in Manchester, we don't yet really see a trend for leather jackets, whereas in London we can sell really, you know, amazing leather jackets. So in Manchester, not really uh, seen that, but 
outerwear, some of the more technical outerwear is really hot up there. So, um, so yeah, you have to adjust your buying and think about the different stores mm-hmm. um, and where you put your emphasis and uh, priorities. But are, are people kind of coming into that store and making their, their first purchase of Japanese or that kind of world? Is it, Would you say a lot of the time you're noticing people go, okay, I want to get into this world and they'll go to the store to do that, make that first step? In Manchester? Yeah. Um, well, in Manchester, we are actually a much more visible. Like in London, I always say we're like a needle in a haystack, <laughs> especially in Fitzrovia. Yeah. You know, it's slightly off the beaten track, although mm. it's central. We're very much a destination store, so it's people really come to us. Apart, unless you work in the area, there's a lot of media and film production in the area that you know you, you, you work in. And... Um, they're really good customers to have that will see us and walk by and think, oh, what's this and come in? And But in Manchester, we're much more visible. Um, it's a smaller city. Uh, Thomas Street is quite a well-known street. Mm. It's in the heart of the Northern Quarter. Mm. So we get a lot more footfall and a lot more people coming in that have never, don't know anything you know, about us. Mm. So we... You know, we do have people that walk in and walk out much more up, up there than we do in London uh, without a sale. Uh, but at the same time, we are converting people that would have never found us otherwise and uh, getting into raw denim and quality raw denim. There's also, you know, from our online store being nine years old, we have a lot of customers in the Northwest and uh, they were delighted, you know, that we opened a second shop yeah. uh, on their doorstep. So we have customers from Liverpool, uh, the whole Manchester area, Sheffield, Leeds and, you know, uh, further afield that will uh, come to that store so I'm going to take you I'm going to ask you to go back in your mind if you can remember February 2020 what would you say roughly were your was the ratio of your online sales and your in-store sales could you t- could you take your mind, your mind back it was uh, 50-50 maybe really? slightly more towards online okay. but um, 50 you could maybe say 55 for online at times, but it would oscillate a little bit between 50-55% in favour of online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your online store is, where would you say from there, where are the sales going, would you say, around the world? About 40% is uh, to the UK, 45% to the UK, yeah. yeah. And then the rest is around the world. About half of those is to the EU, mm-hmm. the other half predominantly to the USA, but um, also to Canada, Australia, occasionally the Far East, get the odd one to Japan that mm-hmm. always makes us smile. We love selling to Japan. It's not usually jeans unless they're British made jeans. Because, yeah. they're, because they like like a Dawson denim kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they like that? They like that they, it's they, made they, Well, British, they like something that's British made, so that's when you'll get your sale to Japan. Mm-hmm. Or we might sell, like, some of the Indigo Ferro blankets or, yeah. Right, right, right. But, um, but yeah, it's few and far between to Japan, to be honest. Uh, mainly the States. And um, what's interesting in the States, about 50% of the States it comes from California. Yeah, it's, it's a big state. It's a wealthy state. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, but yeah half of our overseas sales are to the EU mm-hmm. yeah well we're talking about the EU we, we, I mean if it's alright I would love to talk to you about how if we can try and be objective here um, how Brexit has affected the business I mean that's a vague a very big question but would we say it's been predominantly negative it's been extremely negative. Really? Uh, yeah, um, it is so much more complicated now shipping to the EU. Yeah. We've exchanged friction-free access uh, to Europe uh, for well, I don't know what we've exchanged it for yet, but the um, yeah, it's making it very hard to ship to the EU because of all the uh, customs regulations. It's much more costly. We're covering the duties on behalf of the customer at the moment. We've had to raise our prices a little, but in actual fact, we haven't. We should raise them further to cover the costs. We're we're taking quite a big hit on our margins. Well, your Uh, margins are already fairly narrow. Yeah, no one makes amazing margins in in this game, so it's it's tough. The complicated thing is, you know, uh, when you 
want to do a return and um, it, the, the, we're just swamped with um, red tape and uh, it's it's soul destroying really it, it, it's terrible for the guys who work for me because um, you know every day they're just coming in and dealing with the fallout of this and you know there'll be customs packages that might uh, be stuck somewhere in, in Europe I mean we haven't had too much of that thankfully things are getting through to our customers but it's really draining our resources and it's also draining the bank <laughs> you know so we're looking at uh, I've been working since New Year on uh, routing our um, through Holland and um, Giles at Einhardt uh, we've been working together on this uh, project. There is an option where we will um, pay Dutch VAT on our, all our European sales um, and ship everything via Holland. It shouldn't delay. It might make shipping times like one day slower, but but no more. And um, it will just make it easier to distribute then around the EU. Uh, but it's kind of early days with that. We. We've still got work to do, and nothing's as straightforward as you first imagined. So we're working through the finer details on that. But as a whole, you know, I, you know, Brexit as a whole for us, it, it, it's it's been horrendous, and um, I, you know, respect anyone's opinion. Mm-hmm. But there, there, there were different ways that we could have left the EU. Um, we didn't have to leave in this kind of dramatic, hardline manner that, you know, the Brexit Taliban, as I call them, that control some wings of our government uh, wanted. You know, they get in a lather about, they just want it to be as, you know, and we're now suffering the consequences of that. You know, small businesses, you know, across the UK, uh, not just in clothing, but, you know, fishermen, uh, people that make cheese, everyone is really suffering because... The government decided to leave Europe in a hard line manner and they could have found a much easier way we could have stayed within the single market and still left the political institutions of the EU um, because that's what people voted for but no they interpreted that vote in such a way that it's now having a serious impact on British business and you know Ironheart and Rivet and Hyde will be looking at creating jobs in the EU and paying tax in the EU. I'm sure that's not what people really wanted when, you know, they were voting to come out of the EU. That's jobs that won't be created here in the UK. I mean, that's insane. Mm. Mm. And, and that's coming at it from a very much objective point of view because it's your, it's your business, it's your livelihood. Yeah, I'm not, so. uh, you know, uh, I'll just be honest. I, I, I love a good, frank discussion with anyone mm. and uh, I've got, friends and family who uh, voted for Brexit, you know, and we've had some pretty uh, animated, you know, discussions, but I, I like I like that, you know, it's, it's part of the human condition to be able to do that. And, um, you know, that's what makes us human. So, um, you know, but I'm not afraid of telling it as it is. And uh, this is how, this is what it's like, you know. Well, you've been fairly vocal. I mean, you were with ITN yesterday. Yeah, well, I'm a member of the Federation of Small Businesses. So back in January, I contacted them and said, look, um, all these rules and regulations now shipping into Europe is really hurting us. So I'd like to get our story out. Um, and they said, well, you know, we'll pass any news organisations your way. And there's been kind of a flood of them. <laughs> After this, I'm talking to the Times again. And I've done a couple of Times radio programmes. And uh, there was an article in the Financial Times uh, with our story in it. So, I mean, it's been good. It's been good press for us. Mm. Um, I wish we could have good press for a more positive reason than just explaining all the woes of uh, (laughs) Brexit. But um, I I feel strongly that we need to... We we can't just shut up and be quiet about this. People need to understand how this is affecting British businesses and European businesses. And hopefully that will put pressure on the politicians to get back around the table and try and work out... a, a deal. I'm not, I'm not suggesting for one moment that we go back into the EU. Mm. You know, I think that's you know that, that's not what I'm saying. But let's get back around the table and work out a much better way of uh, trading with each other because at the moment uh, it's not working well. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously I don't want to kind of dwell on this subject too much, but we had obviously we had our first 
lockdown last March, um, online sales for you, I mean, thankfully, you've got very strong online presence and the website's beautiful. If you haven't gone to it, it's obviously rivetandhide.com. Um, you can get all sorts of brands. You get, obviously, Ironheart, Mr. Freedom, 316, I mean, off the top of my head, any other brands that people might want to check Pure out? Pure Blue Japan, Viberg Boots. Boots. Yeah. Um, what's the new sunglasses that you're stocking? Oh, Matsuda. Matsuda. Oh, I mean, yeah. incredible. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, I mean. anyway, check it out because it is fantastic. But lockdown came in in March. Everything then online. What how, What were the trends? How did things go after, after lockdown? Well, it was pretty scary, as you can imagine, you know. And um, But the online store did did okay it did yeah. it, it we were closed for three months we took the decision to close the stores about two weeks before the official lockdown because you know I, I, I felt that was the right thing to do at the time because of the um, danger to my staff and customers so we our lockdown was a bit longer than the official one but the online did well and we kind of leveled with the year before which I thought was quite amazing just shows how much that the online store picks up the slack from the two physical stores being closed. Mm. And it was like that through to the autumn. And then I started noticing that we, that they closed the stores again in um, November, beginning of November. And then we started really losing out on the previous year because November, December, you do so well uh, online and in store but the online just couldn't pick up what we were losing in store. We were open for a few weeks, a couple of weeks in London, a few more in Manchester before the next, the third lockdown came that we're still living in mm. until next month. Mm. And it has, and, and, and now it's just been exacerbated by the whole Brexit exactly. fallout because all we've got is online. And so the ease of trading online is so important mm. and yet one big chunk of our market to the EU is, you know, it, it is suffering mm. because of uh, the changes and uh, could have really done without that. I don't know why the government didn't delay it for at least a year or two. Mm. No. Yeah. It, it, yeah. So much at the moment doesn't make sense. <laughs> no. <laughs> so you, you meet some incredibly interesting people with, with, with what you've entered into with Rivet and Hyde and, and obviously all the trade shows, all, all the relationships you've built up over the years. Um, when things do eventually return to normal, what would you say are the things you're looking forward to the most? I'm looking forward to seeing customers in the shop again yeah. and interacting with them and just seeing the shops come alive. Mm. You know, that's that that's going to be good. And we're actually doing a bit of a refit in the London shop. Oh, yeah. Robin, who built the two shops, he's uh, building us some new cabinets and uh, we're going to try and make the London shop a little bit more spacious and um, kind of slightly less rustic um, okay. yeah and make it a little bit more just modern modernize it slightly in yeah. certain areas so I'm looking forward to that but I'm also looking forward to I hate buying anything from catalog uh, I have to see the product um, even if I know the fits if, if it's a, if it's the same silhouette yeah that helps but I still like to see the fabrics myself try it on engage and also meet the brands because the personal rapport that I have with them so going back to Japan you know it's been I was there in December the year before last and normally we would go twice a year so going back to Japan and the trade shows in Europe and then seeing all our uh, not just the brands but fellow shop owners uh, seeing Kia and Demetra from Selfed who you know uh, I miss and um, Andrew uh, Chen and Johan when he travels from 316 it's always uh, great to see them PBJ um, you know all the brands that we carry we meet them either in the States Japan or Europe um, on a fairly regular basis and that's really important to me and then there's the social time with that as well uh, so and you're doing that on sorry you're doing that on Zoom at the moment though right basically you're having yeah. trade shows um, God Zoom. I mean you're <laughs> fucking Zoom. I, I mean, you're pretty gregarious, so I, I imagine that it's a bit. It probably feels a bit lame for you, but I mean, how are you getting on with the whole? I, I do buying? understand Zoom fatigue. You know, it's, and I, I don't have to do it too often. You know, some of the people that I Zoom with, uh, you know, they're just zooming five hours a day. You know, I, I might have one or two Zoom meetings a day, hmm. uh, but no, it's not the same. 
Uh, I mean, it's helpful. It's you know, it's definitely been really helpful because we built the new website last year by using Zoom instead of having meetings with the uh, web designers. Right. So we had lots of Zoom meetings last year. Yeah. And um, by the end of that process, I was pretty zoomed out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Danny, the last the last thing I want to ask is, what are the things that we need to look out for that's coming into store? What are the what are the next key products that are coming in that you're really excited about that you want to tell people about? We've got a great outerwear brand coming um, at the end of the year. Um, well, in the autumn. Mm. Um, I don't want to say too much now because yeah. the order's got to be confirmed. So it's still but, hanging in the balance. Yeah. So you can update Japan, us. Japanese fabrics, but made in uh, Italy. Some people might be able to work out that one. But, uh, <laughs> I'm not going uh, to divulge any more information on that. Um, we've got a collaboration with Pure Blue Japan uh, coming okay. out later this year. Can you tell us about that? It's a denim jacket. Yeah. Okay. So uh, and we've decided to do it in both uh, both styles of uh, type two and type three. Oh, two and three. Yeah. And, With the um, traditional slubby. Yeah, yeah. What they do so well. They do you know? so well. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, at the moment we're submitting. Uh, well, we've submitted most of our winter orders. Um, the Ironheart lineup is really exciting. Um, there's some beautiful uh, UHFs. You know, um, Good Art keep releasing some like crazy good new pieces that uh, it's just we, like endless isn't it yes yeah. <laughs> it's such a joy to work with them I mean it's like a different dimension to clothing and um, yeah it's expensive to buy those it's expensive to keep good stock of it so we yeah. do our best but you know we've, we've done really well with it since uh, we started with them uh, several years ago and um, but we're always excited to see their new collections mm. and uh Creations. It is creations, isn't it? And it is art. Josh is just like, and I forgot. Forgive me, I forgot the name of his partner. Rachel. Rachel. The, the things that come out, you just like, oh, here's a here's a a, a, a lid to a you know lip salve, you know, yeah. and you're just like, why would I ever buy that? And then you think, that's really cool. I'm yeah. totally gonna buy that. All the things you never thought you needed in sterling silver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and suddenly you just can't stop thinking about them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good brand. Also, Moonstar shoes. Uh, oh, they they do really well, and we're actually going to bring in their um, shoes like pottery. Ah, there we go. There's a, a new one that's Is that coming. coming in. It's imminent. Uh, shoes like pottery. Uh, in fact, you've reminded me. I need to check. I thought they'd have been delivered by now. Um, yeah. Probably be something else blamed on Brexit. No, it's co- <laughs> it's coming from Japan though. So uh, yeah, check that out after this. Uh, but uh, shoes like pottery. So yeah, Moonstar do actually. If you do live in the UK, I have to say this: Moonstar do these weatherproof boots. I don't know if that's the official name for them. All weather, all weather boots, and they are fucking brilliant. I do actually recommend them because <laughs> living in this country, to have something that is practical, waterproof, stylish, is actually a bit of a, an anomaly. So yeah, well, you've got the vulcanized sole, and then the the, the rubber. Uh, outer the guard uh, around the base it, you know you can walk through puddles and uh, wet you know typical English weather and uh, your your feet will stay dry yeah. so things are going to be at the time of recording this we're recording this on 4th of March things are going to relax you're going to be able to open the store again 12th of March 12th of March 5 weeks time or 6 weeks time yeah yeah. 5 weeks on Monday Counting the days. <laughs> oh, so hang on. So it opens... Hang on. Oh, sorry, um, April the 12th. April 12th. Sorry. I'm with you. Sorry, yeah. yes. April 12th. You can go into the store in Manchester, which is 59 Thomas Street, and you can go into Rivet and Hyde Windmill Street. What's the number? Number five. Five Windmill Street in five to six weeks. Yep. Five weeks on Monday, 12th of April. Doors open. Beaming smiles as usual. <laughs> Hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer. Yeah. And mask. Mask if you need it. Hopefully, we won't need to supply those for much longer with the, you know, the way things are going. But I think initially we'll still have those uh, conditions in place when you know people come and see us. Yeah. Well, do go and check out the stores because they are brilliant and the boys are fantastic. Shout out to Robbie. Shout out to Paul. Paul, there's. Up in, there's James in London. Uh, Jack sadly has uh, moved down to the south coast and now with Ironheart. They couldn't be in a better place. Mm. And up in Manchester, we've got Ross, who's managing the store, Stephen and Ben. Yeah. 
shout out to the boys um Danny, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time. No, it's been uh, my pleasure totally. Thanks, uh, Ollie. And thank you, Ironheart. Love to Giles and Paula. You've been listening to Ironcast, the official podcast of Ironheart International. A big thank you to Danny Hodgson of Rivet and Hyde. Ironcast is an island-to-island production. I've been your host, Ollie Walker. We hope you enjoyed listening and we look forward to dropping episode four very soon. Take care.